have sacrificed my rights in the interests of the nation, while reserving for myself the sovereignty and property of the island of Elba, which has been consented to by other powers. Be so good as to have this new state of affairs made known to the inhabitants and the choice I have made of their island, because of its climate and the gentleness of their ways, for my sojourn. Tell them they will be the constant object of my sincerest interests. Henceforth, I want to live the life of an ordinary justice of the peace. The Emperor is dead, and I am no longer of importance to anyone. My only concern is for my little island. I require nothing more of the world than my family, my little house, my cows and mules. Napoleon Bonaparte, 1814 200 years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies, and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 36, Napoleon's Hundred Days, Part 1 On February 26, 1815, a Sunday, the town of Porto Ferraio, the largest city on the Mediterranean island of Elba, was abuzz. Various residents of the town had been packing and feverishly writing letters and wills for several days. Seven ships, including the brig La Inconstante, formerly of the French Navy, had been assembled in the harbor. Something big was afoot. At nine o'clock that morning, the town's most famous resident left his home and went to church for Catholic Mass, a little unusual because he usually took Mass at ten. The man in his mid-forties, fairly short, somewhat chubby, wore a plain green military coat. If you hadn't been paying attention for the last twenty years of European history, you might be surprised to realize this little man was one of the most famous and the most hated human beings on planet Earth. Napoleon Bonaparte, formerly the Emperor of the French, had officially come to an ignominious end as the king, that's in quotes, of Elba, an island with less than one-fifth of the land area of the city of Los Angeles today. After causing Europe to run with rivers of blood for most of the last two decades, the Allied powers, Great Britain, Austria, Prussia, and Russia, had finally cornered him and knocked him off his throne about nine months earlier. But anyone who knew Napoleon, or knew him well, could have predicted that he wouldn't sit still, at least not so close to the European mainland. Napoleon is the paradigm definition of the guy who doesn't know when the party's over. Most likely he'd been hatching plans to return to France and try one more time to be emperor almost as soon as he landed on Elba. In any event, the Allied powers were pretty naive. Bonaparte may have lost most of his army and his prestige in the snows of Russia and Poland, and a little later at the Battle of the Nations. 
but it was going to take one more defeat to truly send him packing. On that Sunday, February 26th, Napoleon and his staff, consisting of four generals who'd accompanied him into exile and a few hundred soldiers, started boarding the ships in the harbor at Porto Ferraio. They had trouble finding room for the horses at the Grenadiers amidst all the supplies that Napoleon's men had been stockpiling for the last couple of months. Napoleon himself, after supervising the beginning of the loading, went to his small palace in the early evening to say goodbye to his mother, Letizia, and his sister, Pauline. Napoleon was married, but his wife, Empress Marie-Louise of Austria and their son, never went with him to Elba. He was back on board the L'Inconstant by 8 p.m. Nearly all of Elba's population had turned out to bid their king goodbye and good luck, officially. One wonders how many fans Napoleon really had on Elba, or anywhere else for that matter, but when emperors or dictators want cheering crowds sending them off, their toadies usually find a way to supply them. So it was on this evening. The seven ships set sail at 9 o'clock that night, headed for the southern coast of France. The final episode of Napoleon's amazing career, and a brief but fascinating war that the other European powers suddenly fought against him, was about to begin. The story of Napoleon's 100 days, technically it was 111 days, is possibly one of the most dramatic stories of the entire decade of the 18-teens. It's a story of hubris, conceit, incompetence, audacity, and eventually a story involving booming cannons and galloping horses. You know, all that stuff you love about the second decade. In this brief period, Europe completed its transformation into what it would eventually become for the next 99 years, until the outbreak of another war during another second decade. But all that lay in the future. Join me now as we delve into the first part of the amazing story of Napoleon's Hundred Days. Good evening. I'm pleased to welcome you to the first episode of the third season of the Second Decade Podcast. I've been away several months, but I'm ready to start again into the history of my favorite decade, which many of you have come to love as well. There are a couple of announcements I'd like to make before we get into the story of Napoleon. This episode will go live during the week that is exactly two years since the first episode of Second Decade premiered, on October 30th, 2016. Happy Halloween, by the way. Second Decade's always been a very small operation. It's just me. I don't have a staff or an editor or a sound engineer. It's just me. That sets it apart from many other history podcasts, including most of the shows that are also on the Recorded History Network many of which have grown into sophisticated operations involving lots of collaborators and a lot more episodes than I've been able to do just on my own in the past two years. A lot has happened to me in the last two years. During the run of this podcast, I've moved homes and jobs, started a different career, and dealt with more than one serious health condition, and those challenges are ongoing. As much as I would love to continue making Second Decade Forever, the realities are that eventually I'm going to have to give it up. I don't know when that'll be, I'm not announcing any plans, and I have been continuing to compile ideas and research for future episodes. But it is at least possible that this might be the final season of Second Decade. Keeping to a regular production schedule has become more and more challenging as time goes on. I gave a similar warning at the beginning of Season 2, and I repeat that here. I'm also not sure if I'm going to be able to finish the Second Decade book. That project has also been hard to move forward, though I'd very much like to be able to finish it. In short, I'm going to do the best I can this season, and I hope it's enough. I thank everybody for their listenership, their patience, and their support. 
This project has been much more successful than I imagined it would be two years ago when I set out to do a history podcast. So thank you, everybody. And now we return to the seemingly never-ending saga of Napoleon. Although his shadow hangs very long over the entire second decade, the last time Napoleon was center stage in our story was back in the middle of season one, in the three-part episode I did on Napoleon's Russian campaign of 1812. Napoleon's Hundred Days is obviously the sequel to that story, and I'd always intended to cover it here on the show. If you haven't heard parts 1, 2, and 3 of Napoleon in Russia, you should probably go back and listen to them before starting this series. To understand what Napoleon was doing on Elba, and why it was so imperative for the other European countries to mobilize against him when he left Elba in early 1815, you first have to have an appreciation for the incredible path of destruction that Bonaparte carved through European society in the first two decades of the 19th century. So how did we get here? How did Napoleon go from this massive and tragic defeat in Russia and the disastrous retreat to being the air quotes king of an island that you could walk across in a day? It's worth a little background. The thing you have to understand about Napoleon's personality and his career was that it was powered by audacity, not by genius. Very much like Adolf Hitler, another low-born conqueror who ended up staying up way past his bedtime, Napoleon's successes in the early years of his reign were much more due to creative improvisation than from any sense that he had a grand master plan. Napoleon seized power in 1799 in a military coup in France that finally arrested the internal chaos of the French Revolution. Over the next several years, he turned outward, seeking to strengthen France by weakening everybody else around him, and he was pretty successful, reaching the zenith of his power about 1807. That's where this podcast first found him, as Napoleon was meeting with Russian Tsar Alexander I at a summit meeting on a river barge after Napoleon's most smashing victory at Friedland. After 1807, Bonaparte stumbled into one bear trap after another, and toward the end there was really no excuse for his bungling and poor judgment, which stood in contrast to his pretty incisive decision-making processes earlier in his career. In 1808, the French got bogged down in Spain. Napoleon experienced his first real defeat on the battlefield in May 1809 when the Austrians clowned him at the Battle of Aspern-Essling. He wasn't finished, though. I talked a lot about the disastrous run-up to his war with Russia, and how even Napoleon's own advisors had warned him that an invasion of Russia was bound to fail. But no, Napoleon just had to stick his finger in that light socket one more time, and about a million people paid the ultimate price. He gained absolutely nothing from the Russian campaign, and in fact was now fatally weakened, both militarily and politically. In 1813, Napoleon's enemies, particularly Great Britain, finally saw an opportunity to terminate the troublesome French Empire once and for all, or at least what they thought would be once and for all. The roll call of countries opposing him was now pretty much old news. The British, the Austrians, the Prussians, the Russians, and various other countries Bonaparte had pissed off over the years, like Spain, Portugal, and Sweden. Germany, or what would eventually become Germany, was the main stage on which this newest war played out. Astonishing as it sounds after years of war, Napoleon was actually able to scare up enough troops to have another go. This was mainly because most of his previous conflicts were fought by allies and client states, and he hadn't yet heavily tapped the reserves of France. In the spring of 1813, just six months after his fortunes went south in Russia, he had a new army of 200,000 marching across Germany. Napoleon won two important victories against the Allies in May, the first at Lützen, 
the second at Bautzen. Though on the surface it looked like the old Napoleon, you know, the one who actually used to win big battles, was back, in reality these victories weren't as impressive as they seemed, and in each case his enemies managed to escape without being destroyed. Bonaparte had one big victory left in him. It happened at Dresden on August 27th, but even here Napoleon's nerve ultimately failed. Once again, as he'd been doing a lot lately, he didn't exploit the opportunity to pursue his enemy. After Dresden, he rode off the battlefield without giving further orders. If you'll recall, in my series on Napoleon and Russia, I marshaled, no pun intended, the evidence that showed that whatever Napoleon's capabilities had been at the peak of his career, in the Austerlitz days, by 1812 he just couldn't do it anymore. His behavior after Dresden, and particularly before the decisive battle of the nations, strengthens the hypothesis that he'd pretty much lost his edge as a military genius by this point. Long story short, Napoleon took a swipe at Berlin, but never got there. He was forced to withdraw westward, toward Leipzig, and there his enemies closed in. What came to be called the Battle of the Nations, which raged for three days in October 1813, proved to be the biggest battle of the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon was defeated, and this time his fractious enemies wouldn't let him wriggle out of it. In November, the Allies offered peace, and even on fairly generous terms. Napoleon could stay emperor, but France was supposed to be whittled down to its former size, which meant Bonaparte would have to barf up all the territory he'd conquered and still not yet lost. Even most people in France knew this was the best he was going to get, but Napoleon himself didn't get the memo, or at least refused to believe that he was finished. He held out. The Allies withdrew the offer, and then, getting really tired of his crap, in January 1814, they invaded France. By March, the gig was up. With foreign armies advancing on Paris from every direction, and Napoleon himself still refusing to face reality, the city leaders of Paris evacuated and left the Bonapartes to their fate. On March 29th, Napoleon had most of the members of his family, including his wife, Marie-Louise, and their son, evacuated in a caravan of green carriages. Marie-Louise was never to see her husband in person again. On April 6, 1814, Napoleon was forced to abdicate as emperor. Ultimately, he decided the Allies weren't going to take him alive. Two years earlier, as they evacuated the smoldering ruins of Moscow, Napoleon had his doctor prepare a couple of vials of poison that he kept in a little leather pouch tied with a ribbon. A couple of days after his abdication, he gulped them down. If this suicide attempt had succeeded, or if Bonaparte had found another way to do himself in, the Hundred Days would never have happened. As it was, because the poison had been sitting around for two years, it lost a lot of its effect. Napoleon spent the night writhing in agony on his bed, but in the morning he was beginning to recover. There was really no choice but to accept the last offer the Allies gave him, permanent exile on the island of Elba, but they would let him pretend to be king at least. This raises a question that isn't really fleshed out very well in most of the casual retellings of this history. If Napoleon was such a problem, and if the Allies blamed him personally for causing all these wars, which they did, why on earth did they give him an island and send him into exile? Why not put him on trial and execute him, thus making sure he'd never trouble them again? This question is very easy to ask on the other side of 1945, when trial and execution as a war criminal was precisely the fate that Hitler was trying to avoid when he and Eva Braun swallowed bullets down there in the bunker under the Chancellery Garden. But this is one comparison between Napoleon and Hitler that really isn't right to make. What you must understand about the other European powers in 1814 was that, as they were monarchies, 
the French Revolution really terrified them. The overthrow of Louis XVI in 1789, and especially his execution in 1793, sent shockwaves through the European powers. The French Revolution proved that, aside from military force, monarchs clung to power mainly out of respect. They were privileged, they knew it, and they were very secure in making sure everyone else knew it too. The French Revolution was a dangerous precedent because it severed that last rope by which monarchs clung to power in France. In fact, the French Revolution redefined national sovereignty. Previous to 1789, the nation of France was defined as all those lands and peoples ruled by the King of France and who owe allegiance to the King of France. After 1789, the nation was defined as something else, a political unit, a cultural identity, a common citizenship with duties and obligations, but it was something that came from the bottom up, not the top down. Even Napoleon didn't overturn this aspect of the French Revolution. In fact, from 1804 on, he claimed not to be the king of France, but the emperor of the French, deriving his legitimacy to rule in the name of the French nation, not because he was a nobleman who laid claim to France. The other monarchies couldn't afford to give this interpretation of sovereignty any credence. If they did, their own thrones would be in jeopardy. And in 1804, however wrong the process of how he got there was, Napoleon had been crowned emperor by the Pope. In 1814, executing Napoleon would have been a quote-unquote regicide, and even putting him on trial would have been problematic, because most systems of European law maintained that monarchs were above the law. That was precisely the issue in the trial of the English King Charles I in 1649, during the English Civil War. This is to say nothing about the practical and political aspects of turning Napoleon into a martyr, and especially since he had kids, siblings, and various other family members who might come back for revenge or to claim his throne. The end game for the Allies was to get rid of Bonaparte and then hurry up and pretend like the French Revolution never happened, and restore the supposed legitimate King of France, which they did. Since Louis XVI had been both dead and headless for the last 21 years, Next in line, supposedly, was his younger brother, also named Louis, who became Louis XVIII when Napoleon abdicated. So it was clear that the Allies couldn't off Napoleon without endangering the legitimacy of their own thrones. Thus, the hunt was on for an unobtrusive island where he could be exiled and live in relative luxury, so long as he was forgotten and unable to make trouble again. Given what happened in 1815, it's clear they didn't look hard enough. The story of Napoleon's exile on Elba is not very interesting, to be honest. There are several motivations for him wanting to escape, but boredom was certainly one of them. He had an entourage of about 12 officers, and the duties of governing such a small island didn't take a whole lot of effort. This was a man who had once ruled most of continental Europe, and who was most at home on a battlefield full of clashing armies. It was pretty hard to settle for Elba. This wasn't the only reason that Napoleon decided to escape, though. Maybe an even more compelling motivation was that he was quickly going broke. According to the Treaty of Fontainebleau, which laid down the terms of Napoleon's exile, he was supposed to have been able to keep much of the money he'd invested in France, and he was supposed to get an allowance of 2 million francs a year. This didn't count allowances that were supposed to go to various members of his family and the upkeep of his guards and staff on Elba. 
This was all pretty clear in the treaty, but from the word go, the new French king, Louis XVIII, refused to play ball. He publicly admitted that he'd never paid the allowance specified in the treaty. He also seized a lot of Napoleon's funds that were still invested in France. What income Napoleon could count on came mostly from Elba itself, iron mines, for instance, which Napoleon reorganized in the first months of his exile. He also got some bad personal news. On May 29, 1814, not long after Napoleon arrived on Elba, his ex-wife, Josephine de Beauharnais, died at the Chateau de Malmaison of a throat infection, possibly pneumonia. She was 50. Napoleon had divorced her four years previously, but not because he didn't love her anymore. Quite the contrary, he was still crazy about her. But because the Empire of France needed an heir, and Josephine, who was evidently unable to conceive after the birth of her second child by her first husband, couldn't give him one. The death of Josephine devastated Napoleon. He read about it in a newspaper. When he found out, he'd locked himself in his room and wouldn't come out for two days. Maybe it was now that he firmly decided he was going to come back. Maybe not. We'll never know. But we do know that Napoleon loved Josephine until the end of his life. In his last letter to Josephine, written on April 16th, only a couple of days after his suicide attempt and just before he departed for Elba, he wrote this. Quote, my mind and my heart are free of an enormous burden. My fall is great, but at least, according to what they say, it serves a useful purpose. In my retirement, I shall substitute the pen for the sword. The narrative of my reign will be surprising. People have only seen me in profile, and I shall show myself full face. What things are there for me to make known? What men there are about whom they have wrong opinions? I have showered benefits on thousands of wretches. What did they do in the end for me? They have betrayed me. Yes, all of them. End quote. Not exactly the words of a modest man who realizes he's made one of the most epic screw-ups in all of European history. Bored, broke, and mistreated though he was, Napoleon was essentially a narcissist, and he thought the world revolved around him. So naturally, he wasn't going to sit there on Elba playing with paperclips for the rest of his life. The European powers, relieved of what they assumed was finally the end of their problems with Napoleon, convened a great conference in Vienna to decide how best to reconstruct the political order of Europe going forward. I touched a bit on the Congress of Vienna back in episode 8. I'm probably eventually going to have to do a standalone episode on it. Suffice it to say, though, that aside from having literally the most epic party in European history, the crown heads and delegates at the Congress of Vienna really couldn't agree on much of anything. France was ostensibly not invited to the conference, similar to how Germany wouldn't be invited to the Versailles peace talks after World War I, but somehow Napoleon's old foreign minister, Talleyrand, who was there as a quote-unquote observer, managed to insinuate himself into the proceedings. Napoleon kept up on the news of the Congress. Most alarming to him were suggestions that the British and the Austrians weren't quite convinced that their Napoleon problem was over, and they were calling for him to be exiled to an even more remote island, St. Helena in the South Atlantic. More and more, it seemed like the time for an escape was right. One of Napoleon's toadies, Edouard Fleury de Chaboulon, took a tour in France in the early months of 1815 to suss out the situation. He returned to Elba and reported back on February 12th, telling Napoleon basically that the new government of Louis XVIII was a joke. The army didn't respect him, and there was a lot of popular discontent against him. After all, the extremely rotund king had spent most of the last 25 years in exile and really didn't know much about what was going on in France these days. 
That said, Deschamps' report didn't exactly sugarcoat it. He told Napoleon that if he did try to land in France, he couldn't necessarily count on any organized support, at least not right off the bat. If he did it, he'd have to land on the French coast with a small force, and hope to gain recruits from the French army as he went along. There were pockets of royalists between the coast and Paris. It was definitely not a sure thing. What probably was a sure thing was Napoleon's reaction. Within a day, he decided to go for it. He dispatched some more of his toadies to alert sympathetic supporters in France and Italy, and in the meantime, they started to get the ships together and get Elba's small force of guards ready for action. On Sunday, February 26, 1815, the expedition set sail, which brings us full circle back to the top of this episode. It's worth pausing at this moment to think about what Napoleon's motives truly were. If you understand anything about Bonaparte's narcissistic personality, it's obvious that he was going to break out of Elba eventually, and it was a pretty sure bet that he was going to try to get back into power. But did he really think that he had much chance at staying in power and rebuilding his ruined empire? He might have, or he might not have. I'm taken with Napoleon's capacity for self-deception, which I mentioned in the third part of the series on his Russian adventure in 1812. You may remember from that episode, it was episode 12 of this podcast, that Napoleon told a lie about the reason for his Russian defeat, a lie that he apparently came to believe himself. He told everybody that the early onset of winter in Russia had defeated him, and that he would have done just fine, but for that. This impression was false. First of all, the winter weather did not come prematurely to Russia in fall 1812, and Napoleon's army was completely screwed even before they crossed into Russia in June. Very few people at the time believed Napoleon's lie. I found numerous discussions of this issue in newspapers from 1812 and 1813, and it's clear nobody really bought it, except Napoleon himself. The truth about France in early 1815 was that, however shaky the Bourbon Restoration was, the country was not yearning for the good old days of Napoleon. Some urban elites ended up supporting him, and he was always popular in the army. But for the day he landed on the French coast at Golfe Juan, on the French Riviera, on March 1st, 1815, the majority of the French people were against him. Think about it. France's economy had been crippled for years. Prices were high. It was tough to make a living even in an agrarian society. And Napoleon's wars had cleaned out nearly every village in Europe, from Normandy to Poland. People were very, very tired of war. And that's the only way Napoleon could ever have stayed in power, through war. At first, though, things looked pretty promising. Napoleon's force came ashore at Golfe Juan, which is not far from Cannes, now, the, now most famous for the film festival. Napoleon himself stayed aboard his ship, La Inconstant, while his grenadiers clambered ashore on the beach. The first encounter between Napoleon's force and those of Louis XVIII happened when a local health inspector, one Captain Carbonell, accompanied by a few customs officers, rode up to the soldiers unloading on the beach. There was little they could do to stop these guys, who were, after all, unloading rifles and ammunition and such, so they wisely rode off the other direction. Napoleon's men immediately sought out the two local artillery batteries and disarmed them. The small forces gave up without a fight. Hey, it was Napoleon coming ashore, after all. The short Corsican finally touched the soil of France proper for the first time in months. Predictably, he was surrounded by two rows of sailors shouting, Long live the Emperor! The maintenance of Napoleon's ego was one of the main objectives of the campaign, apparently. Still, the Emperor was mindful of the politics of the situation, and he didn't want to just barge ashore and start ordering everybody around. 
He also wanted to try to avoid military confrontation, if at all possible. So he decided that he and his expedition would only travel with a passport, issued by the mayor of Khan. The word passport is a tricky one in this period of history. It doesn't mean the same thing as it does today. When a government issues you a document good for an extended period of time, allowing you to leave your home country, and more importantly, guaranteeing you, in most cases, the right to be let back in. Passports in early 19th century Europe were typically written by local authorities, granting short-term permission to move from one place to another. You could theoretically be jailed if you were found out there on the road without a passport from your home, city, or village. The mayor of Caen did not grant the passport. But after a while, it didn't matter, because he soon found himself basically a prisoner in his office, which became a central point for communication among Napoleon's men. The city was surrounded by troops, and officers were going around throughout the city requisitioning the stuff they'd need. Horses, carts, meat, bread, saddles, canvas for tents, that sort of thing. This was how Napoleon's army had always operated. We saw this in the Russian campaign. Today's standing armies, when they set out on a military campaign, bring their stuff with them. But in the second decade, you could put a couple of guys ashore, tell them to fan out through the countryside collecting supplies and giving local people IOUs, functionally worthless in return, and by nightfall, they would have at least some of the supplies needed to support troops in the field. Forage, they called it, and Napoleon's armies had always been very good at it. It was from the mayor's office in Caen, though, that word started to hit the road, no faster than a horse could gallop, that Napoleon was back, and that he meant business. The little ragtag army left Caen early on the morning of Thursday, March 2nd, 1815. Mindful of the politics, Napoleon realized that, on his way to Paris, the hardest going would be through the area of Provence, where most of the people were pro-royalist. So, quite smartly, he decided to avoid most of Provence by going through the Alps. Not an easy logistical decision in March, and after one of the coldest winters of the second decade, but it was better than provoking open conflict. Napoleon's route to Paris is an interesting one. I hope I'm not going to spoil it for you by telling you that he eventually did reach Paris, and he did get back into power. I mean, come on, that shouldn't be a surprise to you. We wouldn't have a Battle of Waterloo unless that had happened, right? But the route he took and the political changes that occurred during it say a lot about the situation as it developed. Years after the event, in 1831, an amusing roundup of newspaper headlines from France in March 1815 was published in a magazine called the Museum of Foreign Literature, Science, and Art. The headlines which document Napoleon's march across France aren't attributed, but they're too perfect not to share. Here they are. Quote, March 9th, the Anthropophagus has quitted his den. Anthropophagus meets cannibal, by the way. March 10th, the Corsican ogre has landed at Cape Juan. March 11th, the tiger has arrived at Gap. March 12th, the monster slept at Grenoble. March 13th, the tyrant has passed through Lyons. March 14th, the usurper is directing his steps toward Dijon, but the brave and loyal Burgundians have risen en masse and surrounded him on all sides. March 18th, Bonaparte is only 60 leagues from the capital. He has been fortunate enough to escape the hands of his pursuers. March 19th, Bonaparte is advancing with rapid steps, but he will never enter Paris. March 20th, Napoleon will tomorrow be under our ramparts. March 21st, the Emperor is at Fontainebleau. March 22nd, His Imperial and Royal Majesty yesterday evening arrived at the Tuileries, amidst the joyful acclamations of his devoted and faithful subjects. End quote. Resistance was minimal. 
For the most part, local garrison commanders, while citing their steadfast support for King Louis XVIII in frequent letters to Paris, largely took token actions to muster their forces against Napoleon, but they never actually went into battle against him. Many of the men who were called up, they were sort of like the National Guard of France, in fact joined Napoleon's expedition and were promptly set to work, you guessed it, scooping up barrels of flour, herding pigs and cows, and requisitioning horses and other supplies. Still, there were a couple of close calls, or at least they looked close at first glance. On March 7th, Napoleon's forces approached Grenoble, one of the two most fortified garrisons through which he'd have to pass. The general in command, General Marchand, who was once decorated by Napoleon, ordered his colonel, de la Sarte, to ride out with 800 men to arrest Napoleon and stop his forces by any means necessary. De la Sarte did his duty. He even sent a letter to Napoleon, saying, If you do not retire, I shall arrest you. As soon as he got this letter, Napoleon jumped on his horse and rode full bore toward the officers he could see in the distance. His own troops had their weapons drawn. One of the junior French officers even gave the order to fire on Napoleon's men, but no one did. In typical audacious fashion, Napoleon rode in front of de la Sarre's men and shouted, If there is any soldier among you who wishes to kill his emperor, here I am. De Lassar's men broke ranks and started shouting, Long live the emperor, and singing the Marseillaise. This bit of theater proved perhaps decisive. As regiment after regiment came over to him in Grenoble, Napoleon suddenly had an army of 8,000 men, very well equipped. With Grenoble going over to him, it wasn't too likely that Lyon would hold out. On Friday, March 10th, Napoleon and his troops entered that city, whose gates had been left open for him. People swarmed through the streets, shouting, Down with the priests! Down with the aristocrats! Hang the Bourbons! Long live freedom! The spirit of the French Revolution was not dead in Lyon. Lyon was the turning point in Napoleon's comeback. Now it seemed inevitable that he would march on Paris, and likely that the rickety government of Louis XVIII would collapse. He now started acting once again like the Emperor of France. He made a proclamation in Lyon, telling the people he was defending the revolution and that he would provide them a new constitution. He also ordered the flags of the Bourbon dynasty to be replaced all throughout France with the tricolor, the flag that had been instituted during the revolution and which supposedly symbolized its ideals. Not so publicly, Napoleon quickly went to the Bank of France in Lyon and made a rather large withdrawal, 600,000 francs. After all, he had to pay for his return somehow, right? In Napoleon's France, the line between legitimate business and outright robbery was always a pretty sketchy one. This all happened March 10th. The government in Paris had known about Bonaparte's return for five days. King Louis was told of his landing, but only the initial reports had reached Paris by that time. The reports that he had only a handful of men, and the local authorities were going out to arrest him. Even if the situation wasn't so fluid, on paper the king wasn't totally off his rocker to think that Napoleon wasn't such a big threat he landed with just a couple hundred troops. In theory, the King of France commanded an army of 200,000 soldiers. No match, right? Louis was placated in subsequent days by hopes that France's highest-ranking general to survive the Napoleonic era, Marshal Ney, once Bonaparte's right-hand man in military affairs, would stop him. Ney was no hardcore Napoleon fanboy, and in fact he had been one of the generals who demanded his abdication in 1814. But Ney was basically the definition of a fair-weather friend. When he felt the wind blowing from Grenoble and Lyon, 
he switched sides and went over to Napoleon. He would again be at Napoleon's side at Waterloo. So that proved a major bummer for Louis. As Napoleon and his forces approached, the king went to address the Chamber of Deputies and Nobles at the Bourbon Palace. The French government in 1814 and 1815 was a curious pastiche of royal autocracy and constitutional monarchy. Some democratic elements put in by the revolution had survived, but no one was sure how they were going to work in practice under the new king. Louis had basically bupkis to offer the chamber except strong language. He gave his speech howling against Napoleon, warning of civil war and foreign war. He ended the speech by saying, quote, Gentlemen, let the two chambers give it the force of authority it requires, and this war will then truly prove to be a national war, showing what can be done by a great people, united together by their love for their king and their fundamental love of the state. End quote. Nice words, but not likely to change much, and they didn't. Without an army to defend him, Louis and what was left of France's royal family basically had one choice, skedaddle. Over the weekend, nobles, government officials, and lackeys of the king started bolting for the exits. Aristocrats loaded up their carriages with trunks, applied for passports to anyone who'd write them, and skipped town as fast as possible. The rich were draining French banks of all their reserves so that a Bonaparte couldn't embezzle them. An incredible 20 million francs were withdrawn from French banks over that weekend, March 18th and 19th. At midnight Sunday night, the king himself finally gave up the ghost. He left the Tuileries Palace with a couple of family faithful and headed north toward the English Channel. Like most of the aristocracy, he was hoping to leave the country before Napoleon could stop him. He got away. He spent the rest of the Hundred Days in Ghent in Belgium, where recently the treaty to end the War of 1812 between Great Britain and the United States had been signed the previous Christmas Eve. On March 20, 1815, Napoleon returned to the same Tuileries Palace from which he'd been evicted nine months earlier. The old gang was starting to reconstitute itself. Marshal Ney was back, and even Armand de Calancourt, Napoleon's old adjutant he figured prominently in the Russian campaign, he was back too. Napoleon went right back to his old apartments in the palace. He told one of his generals, It is really those who had nothing to gain who brought me back to Paris. It was the second lieutenants and the privates who did it all. It is to the people, the army, that I owe everything. Of course, in short order, it was those second lieutenants and privates, the ones who had nothing to gain, who would lose it all in the war that would inevitably follow. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Also, check out the other great history podcasts on the Recorded History Network. Podcasts like Human Circus, Dead Ideas, The Age of Napoleon, Art History Babes, Explorers, History in Hindsight, and Stuff What You Tell Me. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. Music Credits Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of incompetech.com used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. My historical sources for this episode include 100 Days, Napoleon's Road to Waterloo by Alan Shaw, Athenaeum, 1992. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.